Thank you. And what I would remind you is that these three approaches are basically Zazen. And Suwaki Koto Roshi, one of our revered Soto uh, 20th century ancestors, uh, says the Buddha Dharma, speaking of Zazen, he says, the Buddha Dharma is always ungraspable, which is signlessness. There is nothing to be gained, which is wishlessness or aimlessness, which we'll talk about tonight. And in the practice of the Buddha way, there is neither illusion nor satori. And this is emptiness. So we'll come back to this as a way of tying things together at the end. But as I've been doing, I want to do a little review of uh, last week's class, which was on the door of signlessness. So as I said, this signlessness is a concentration that uh, is one of the most refined or supposedly highest meditative states, just on the threshold of nirvana, according to the early Buddhist model. And this practice of signlessness or anamita is really the practice of deconstructing and disconnecting from signs or from sense objects or thoughts. The signs we identify with are uh, often cognitive hindrances. When we create a sign, we're also creating a, uh, a subtle obstruction of our pure awareness. And we impute, we assign meaning to this sign. And then we're led astray by this. Uh, so whenever we objectify a thought or a feeling, meaning uh, that we believe that this thought or feeling or, or something that we're perceiving has uh, substance or reality, that's what's meant by creating a sign. And, you know, in, in Zazen, Perceptions may occur, uh, but they don't necessarily reach the awareness of becoming a sign for us. So the practice is signlessness in that, in that sense. So I wanted to read you something here of what, uh, I didn't get to this last time, Thich Nhat Hanh. 
And I, I also want to just acknowledge, because I've been thinking, I'm going to give a talk on Saturday, uh, reflecting further on uh, all that we got from Thich Nhat Hanh over the last 40 years, you know, a tremendous amount of Dharma that that's affected us. Uh, and I think in particular, one of the things, uh, just, just the fact that we're studying the three doors of liberation, in a sense, is one of those uh, dharmic points that we got from Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, it's, it's not commonly studied or commonly talked about in the Mahayana, but he brought it forward uh, pretty early on, and, and that's kind of how we come to be in awareness of it. So what he says is, uh, signlessness means an appearance or the object of our perception. If water, for example, is in a square container, its sign is, square, is squareness. If it's in a round container, its sign is roundness. When we open the freezer and take out some ice, the sign of that water is solid. Chemists call water H2O. The snow on the mountain and the steam rising from the kettle are also H2O. Whether H2O is round or square, liquid, gaseous, or solid depends on circumstances. Signs are instruments for our use, but they are not absolute truth. They can mislead us. The Diamond Sutra says, wherever there's a sign, there is deception, illusion. Go on with Thich Nhat Hanh. Ah, thanks. Um, perceptions often tell us as much about the perceiver as the object of perception. Until we break through the signs, we cannot touch reality. As long as we are caught by signs, round, square, solid, liquid, gas, we will suffer. And this next sentence, I think, is really helpful, which is, nothing can be described in terms of just one sign. So the sign is where we, we may focus where our attention may go to one aspect of something at any, any given moment of time. And then he says, but without signs, we feel anxious, which uh, I think we may understand that very well. Our fear and attachment come from our being caught in signs. Uh, and this is really in line with very often, I just find that Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching and Suzuki Roshi's teaching and Sojin's teaching are all, they're really just on, you know, 
they're very much aligned with each other. Uh, don't be caught by anything. Sojin said this over and over again. And of course, it's really good. It's a good admonition for us because we're caught all the time. We get caught, but when you get hooked, uh, the practice is unhook yourself, get uncaught. Uh, so you're not really caught. You're not really fully hooked like a fish that's been uh, hoisted on a, uh, on a gaff. You know, the hook is just a little bit in, and if it's a little bit in, we can, we can pull it out and let go of it. So, Kai says, our fear and attachment come from our being caught in signs. Until we touch the signless nature of things, we will continue to be afraid and to suffer. When we free ourselves from signs, we can enter the heart of reality. But until we can see the ocean in the sky, or see the ocean in the clouds, or see the ocean in the steam coming from the kettle, uh, we are still caught by signs. The greatest relief is when we break through the barriers of signs and touch the world of signlessness, which is nirvana. Tai says, where should we look for the world of no signs? Right here in the world of signs. If we throw away the water, there is no way to touch the suchness of water. We touch the water when we break through the signs of the water and see its true nature of interbeing. In other words, it's true nature that that water is the coming together of uh, an almost infinite number of causes and conditions. And when we see that, then we're looking, then we're touching the signlessness, the suchness of water. So um, that's what I wanted to review with you. Um, but I just, before I move on, are there any questions or thoughts or comments? And I will, let me look at the participants. You can raise your hand if you have something. Eiko. Thank you, Hosan. The uh, question that came to mind uh, reminded me of something you probably might know from uh, uh, Timothy Leary, who said, tune in, turn on, and drop out. And the summary means that from what you just said, I think, uh, tune in, like water is something we can drink, turn on, enjoy, as it were, the suchness of water, and then drop out let it be neither water nor uh, even anything but an interbeing of experience. I think that's true. My recollection is that you're getting the order slightly different. It's turn on, tune in, drop out. Is, is that I'm, so? I'm, I'm so. Because well, because it reminds me of LSD. First, you. <laughs> Well, you have to take the LSD to turn on <laughs> in order to tune in. That's what I, yeah, but I'm not sure that you're, I don't know for sure now that you got me. 
I, I don't think this is a critical point, <laughs> you know, but to turn on to the breadth of the reality around us and then uh, tuning in is to see the interbeing. Uh, anyway, yes, I remember that vividly. <laughs> uh, Kabir. I hold on, thank you. How one can avoid or not get caught by seeking and avoiding because we're constantly trying to seek happiness and we want to avoid suffering. And in my opinion, that's the root of all the problems we're having in the world. So how can one individual, me, can unhook myself from the seeking and avoiding? Well, that's, thank you. That's what we're getting to in the, in the rest of this session when we talk about wishlessness or aimlessness, okay? So All you're right. I'll, I'll be paying. Pay, pay very close attention. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Lynn. Hi. Um, so this piece about something when you, you say when we're perceiving it, it's a sign. But then I had the experience at Tassahara Creek where I feel I experienced timelessness, you know, because of the oneness, the water, my cells, the light, the reflection, the rock, the whole, the whole of it as a gestalt. And the only kind of sign that I, you know, when I think of it is, is the sun. When I look at the sun, I know, when do I need to go for lunch? When do I need to go for bath? And so this direct experience. So I guess this, there's something where I think there's a difference between the direct experience and the naming of it or the categorizing of it or the, you know, separation of it. So that, that's the... Uh, what, what Ty says, and this is important to remember, where should we look to find the world of no signs? Right here in the world of signs. So, you know, you're not, if you're at Tassahara and your consciousness is open to where you're absorbing all of this sensory input without necessarily, you, you, can, you can come to that. And all of us come to that on, you know, in beautiful moments of the day uh, where we're not necessarily distinguishing, we're not separating the thing, we're taking, we're taking, we're, we're merging into a wholeness. Uh, and for moments we have that. And then in the next moment, our discriminating mind, which is, there's nothing wrong with it. That's also a miracle of signlessness. Our discriminating mind says, oh, I'm gonna get a sunburn if I stay out here too long. Uh, and so we are constantly moving back and forth between the world of, the world of discrimination and the world of non-discrimination. But the point that's being made here on this side is because it's a because these are concentrations, these are meditational approaches, where the emphasis here 
is on the non-discrimination, which doesn't mean that discrimination isn't part of our, uh, it's discrimination also is also an expression of Buddha nature. Uh, but in this case, uh, the problem with discrimination is that we're often caught by it. And in this case, it's, it's pushing the other aspect, it's pushing the non-discriminative, uh, empty and signless side of things. And it's important for us to have the capacity to reach that. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I feel like Tazahara and the practice that's gone on there um, Suzuki Roshi and prior millennia with indigenous people. It's, a, it's almost like this amazing vortex for, for that kind of connection. That, that's true, but let me suggest every place is like that. Well, yes. Everywhere you are <laughs> like that. Every moment of your life is actually like that. That's the point that that uh, that's a point that the Zen masters are making. And it's hard for us to see because we're trapped in our self-creating mechanism, which is a great way to lead to uh, the, the door aimlessness, okay? Yes. Okay, anyone else? Uh, uh, Manuela, you'll be the last one in, on this particular section. Yeah, go ahead. You're muted. Still muted. Okay. Yeah. So I was just thinking of a. Sorry. Uh, I was just thinking of an experience that we had today that's both about uh, sign and then signlessness. And we're bird watchers. And one of the places we go is to the book, uh, the Albany Bulb. And the best time we always say to ourselves uh, to go and see the birds is on a receding tide at a certain point. Mm -hmm. And today, the receding tide would have been at a very different time than when we would be able to go. So we went on a, an ascending tide. And the, I realized um, as we were walking that we, because we go regularly in a receding tide and we know how the water flows, we have a tendency to look for particular things. And that was the signs restricting our ability to actually see everything. And on the ascending tide, we saw all kinds of things that we didn't see on the descending tide. And um, it, I think we were far more present with the totality of all of it right so, so yeah i mean that's that's actually you were manifesting beginner's mind yeah uh you know exactly. when you go on the receding tide because that's what you usually do you think you know what you're going to see and generally you see what you're going to see but when you go on the ascending tide you don't know what what you're going to see and so everything is things are fresh and new it's wonderful thank you so much for that connection to beginner's mind i really like that thanks yeah and i just 
you know, I wish I was a bird watcher. There's something about, you know, there's, it's a very interesting uh, merging of a very broad awareness with a very specific awareness. Uh, and as so long as it's uh, the problem that can arise with bird watching, I think is uh, gaining idea, you know, of like number of birds that you see, you know, <laughs> identifying a rare one, but but the perceptual act of it is is so acute and rarefied. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, we 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 have no uh, list <laughs> that we maintain. Right. Yeah, but even when you think you're looking with a with a broader mind you're constrained in a way you're not aware of until you suddenly see these wonderful things that you, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, right. thank you. And then something, then something comes alive. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Good. Uh, Gary, Gary has a new last name. <laughs> yeah, my <laughs> hip is still bothering me a little. He's got a new, he's got a new sign. <laughs> No, I was I was just reflecting on how good Sojin was at pulling the rug out from under you. Yeah. And he that you know what is it Manuela Manuela was saying is her rug getting pulled out because she wasn't looking for what was atypical, you know. And uh, I thought Mel was great at doing that. He did it to me a lot anyway. Yeah, he was often very good at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's um, that's why we love our our really good teachers. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's bow to each other, take a breath, and collect yourselves again. So I want to talk for a while about uh, the third door of of. Uh, liberation, which is uh, translated as aimlessness or wishlessness. And I want to start with two quotations, uh, both from, uh, from, the, from Japanese Zen masters. Uh, the first is from uh, a wonderful poem, which we have to study at some point. It's called the Shodoka, which is uh, the Song of Enlightenment by Master Yoka Gen, Genkaku. And where it begins is with these verses. It says, there is the leisurely one walking the way beyond philosophy, not avoiding fantasy, not seeking truth. The real nature of ignorance is Buddha nature itself. The empty delusory body is the very body of the Dharma. So just picture this, these first lines. There is the leisurely one walking the way beyond philosophy, not avoiding fantasy, not seeking truth. Basically just taking what is coming your way. The real nature of ignorance is Buddha nature itself. The empty delusory body is the very body of the Dharma. And the second quotation 
I want to read you is very familiar to you. Uh, it's uh, from Genjo Koan. Uh, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And these are the lines that uh, I want to underscore. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. In other words, when you move through your life aimlessly, you allow things to actualize you. So when Chris and Manuela walk down, walk out on the bulb and the tide is coming in instead of going out, all of a sudden they are actualized by myriad things. And the, the self has an opportunity to drop away. So those are kind of prefatory quotations. Uh, the word that's translated from, the word from Sanskrit that's translated as wishlessness or aimlessness, uh, Edward Kanze, the scholar, says the word apranihita means literally that one places nothing in front. And it means designates someone who makes no plans for the future has no hopes for it, who is aimless, not bent on anything, without predilection or desire for the objects of perception that are rejected by the concentration on the signlessness, on signlessness, on the signless, I'm sorry. So the things that we see that have signs, when we continue to walk through the door of a pranahita or, or aimlessness, we let those, we let our uh, desire for those signs drop away. And we just wander freely through the world. So some say that a pranahita is not producing the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion not producing them in the future, and that it's, uh, it's a way of not searching for any kind of existence. Now, in the early Buddhist tradition, and in tradition even, well, certainly up to, up to the early 20th century, I'm not sure how much it exists anymore, uh, in the uh, the Theravada countries, uh, Burma, Thailand, uh, Laos, Cambodia, there was a practice, monks did what was called Tudong, which is the wandering way. So they just wandered, uh, they wandered to the forest and when, it, when the, the dark began to fall, they would just uh, sleep beneath the trees. They would wander from village to village without 
any plan without a goal. They were just wandering and perceiving, taking in whatever met them along the way. So there's a practice that we actually can see manifest in the world. Again, I don't know that this uh, as practice it may, its time may have passed at this point, but, uh, but it really was a living practice up until very recently. So I was looking at Sojin's lecture, uh, which I think you all had his lecture on Three Doors of Liberation, and uh, looking at his commentary about aimlessness, wishlessness. He says, in Zazen, we let go. We offer ourselves to emptiness and to signlessness and to wishlessness. We don't hanker after anything. We let go of all the verbiage and all the signs and simply give ourselves to reality, which is emptiness of form. Enjoy enjoying our forms, even if we're not well, you can do that. And I think it's important to remember that actually uh, he gave this lecture, you know, only a few months before he died. And he was not well. Uh, so he was he was practicing what he was talking about, enjoying our forms, enjoying the form of practice, even if we're not well. And he's telling us. You can do that. And the reason that we know you can do that is because we have the example that he was doing that. And so this is this is a really powerful example for us. He continues, wishlessness means letting go and appreciating. Letting go and being able to appreciate everything around us just as it is. To accept myself just as I am. This is called virtue. Everyone has their own virtue, which is not the same as value. And this is an interesting point. Value is comparative. We're comparing ourselves. When we're looking at value, we're comparing ourselves to others. And we're always comparing ourselves to other people and other things. And we like to think of our progress as the energy that comparison or competition generates. Wishlessness is beyond competition. It's actually called nirvana. Just letting now be now. We live in our dream. And letting go is letting go of the dream. And that's scary. So this is very much like what Thich Nhat Hanh was saying, that the letting go of the signs is can be anxiety producing or fearsome, fearful. Uh, 
Letting go is letting go of the dream, and that's scary. We depend on the dream. So we, we depend, what he's saying is we depend on our, uh, our wishes, our fantasies, our aims for the future. And very often it's these aims for the future, these goals are what uh, we feel sustains us or leads us on. But then he says to have something, if we don't have the dream, what would we do? To have something, a dream, a goal is important, absolutely. But to find your freedom within the goal, but find your freedom within the goal, which is beyond our wishes. So this is what, this is the conundrum that we experience when we look at the idea of liberation or enlightenment or nirvana. Uh, when we establish it as a goal, then it's always, you know, it's, uh, it's like the carrot, a carrot on the stick that's held in front of the horse. You know, it's dangling in front of me and I'm always trying to move forward to, to reach it. That's not the nirvana for the horse would be, oh, I'm just taking one step after another. How wonderful it is to be able fully to move and use my whole body and mind just to do that. You know, uh, so to find that's finding your freedom within the goal. So it's not that uh, our goal is just we want to wake up to reality as it is. So Sojin goes on, he says, wishlessness is characterized by not running after things. So again, we get to the, the carrot on the, the carrot on the stick, you know, we're always, we can be running after no matter how fast or how careful we are trying to sneak up on it, we're, we are not going to get any closer to that carrot. And there's a wonderful section here. Uh, you may remember this. So wishlessness is also characterized by not running after things. Every night I walk the streets with my dog and I come across all kinds of stuff on the corners. And I think, I would like to take that home. Gee, that's such a nice chair. I said, I did find a chair, a really good chair the other night and I took it home. Liz said, why did you bring that home? Why did I bring that home? At the time, it looked really good. I bring all these useless things home. So I'm very conscious of how I should control my wishes. So he said, said, said believe it or not, after 91 years, well, Believe it or not, after 91 years, he still collect. He was still collecting random stuff from the street corner because it looked good to him. You know, he was he was he was not totally uh, uh, immune to uh, his wishes and desires. 
But he also says, after 91 years, I realized that if you follow what you want, that's what you get. So you have to be very careful. You know, you have to be very careful what you take home. Uh, you know, if you're lucky, you have a, uh, a smart and practical wife who says, or husband who says, why did you bring that thing home? But we can say that about anything. We can we need to say that about our life. We need to say that about the things that we that we wish for and we desire. So Thich Nhat Hanh says, we're endlessly running. We're running after love and wealth, enlightenment, whatever. Aimless, aimlessness means you have no goal, no object of pursuit. Then you realize you have everything you need all along. Uh, Zen master Rinzai, his term for this is the businesslessness, businessless person. She who has no personal business to conduct in samsara is called a Buddha. So um, I think of this, um, there's another image that we have in our tradition. Uh, where is it here? The other image that, that resonates for me is the 10th ox herding picture. It's entering the market with bliss bestowing hands. This is the last picture in that, in that set of, uh, of Chinese pictures which, which illustrate the path, illustrate the path to awakening. Uh, and the text to it is, is quite lovely. Uh, his humble cottage door is closed and the wisest don't know him. No glimpses of his inner life are to be caught for he goes or she goes on her own way without even following the steps of the ancient sages. Carrying a gourd, she goes out into the market. Leaning against a stick, she comes home. He's found in company with wine bibbers and butchers. He and they are all converted into Buddhas. Just wandering through the marketplace. And then there's a verse, which is also lovely. Bare-chested and barefooted, he comes out into the marketplace. Daubed with mud and ashes, how broadly he smiles. There is no need for the miraculous power of the gods. Look, with a touch, the dead trees come into full bloom. That's a great verse. Bare-chested and barefooted, 
he comes out into the marketplace. Daubed with mud and ashes, how broadly he smiles. There's no need for the miraculous power of the gods. Look, with a touch, the dead trees come into full bloom. So let me read you a little more from Thich Nhat Hanh, and then we'll stop and have questions and comments. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, aimlessness means you don't put anything in front of you as the object of your pursuit. And we said that already. What you are looking for is not outside of you. It is already here. You are you already are what you want to become. This is a really difficult teaching to, to, to really take that in, that you are what you want to become, or you can be however you wish to be, that that potentiality is within you. Because often we feel we want to be someone else, or we want, the, the core of our suffering actually is, the core of our suffering is precisely our wishes. It's precisely that we want things to be different from how they appear to be at this moment. And whenever we entertain that thought, then we are entertaining suffering. Tipton says, concentrating on aimlessness releases your longing and craving for something in the future and elsewhere. You may be running all your life instead of living it. You may be running after happiness, love, romance, success, or enlightenment. Concentrating on aimlessness consists of removing the object of your pursuit or your goal. If you are running after nirvana, you should know that nirvana is already there in yourself and in everything. If you are seeking happiness, be aware that happiness is available in the here and now. As I'll talk on Saturday, these are, you know, these seems like they seem like wonderful words. They are not platitudes. They are not platitudes. They are the lived experience that with difficulty Thich Nhat Hanh had to discover for himself. And he did share it with us. He told us about it, but it's still our work, our work in Zazen and our work in our life to be able to understand that this is really true. The insight of aimlessness helps you stop running. A wave doesn't have to go and look for water. It is water right here and now. A cedar tree doesn't have a desire to be a pine or a cypress or even a bird. It's the wonderful manifestation of the cosmos, just as it is. You are the manifestation of the cosmos, 
you are wonderful just like that. We are taught to think that if we are aimless, we won't get anywhere. Which reminds me of a, a story that uh, Sojin told, if I'm remembering it correctly, uh, when they were on Dwight Way, uh, I guess there were a there was a series of of uh, burglaries in the neighborhood, and early one morning, people would come early one morning just they just as we used to do here, uh, and we will again uh, to Zazen, and the police were were looking, were watching the streets, and uh, they knocked on the door. And Sojin invited this policeman in, and he wanted to know uh, why were these people coming. Uh, and uh, Sojin told him, well, we have meditation, we have zazen every morning, and so people come to sit together. Uh, and uh, policeman was reflective for a moment and he said, well, where's this going to get you? And Sojin said, we're not trying to get anywhere. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a wonderful story uh, that he really enjoyed. So we're taught to think that if we're aimless, we won't get anywhere. But where are we going? We think that we are born and we have to achieve something before we die. Suppose we draw a line from left to right, representing the course of time. We pick one point, call it point B. We call it birth. We make a birth certificate for this baby, thinking that that person starting at point, thinking that that person starts at point B. But in fact, the child is already there. Even before the moment of conception, the seeds of the child existed in other forms. Point B is a moment of continuation. There is no beginning. We think that there will be a moment when we stop being. On the imaginary line we have drawn, let's call it point D, death. We believe that at birth we pass from non-being into being, and we believe that at death, we will pass from being back into non-being. Looking deeply into our notions of being and non-being, aware of the emptiness and the signlessness of all things, we touch the reality of birthless and deathless nature of all things. Now, as these, as our practice matures in this context, as it matures as the practice of the three doors of liberation, which, as we said, are none other than zazen, as that matures, all notions drop away. Thich Nhat Hanh says, there is no longer any need for fear. If the wave knows how to rest in the water, she enjoys going up and she enjoys coming down. She's not afraid of being or non-being. 
She's not afraid of coming or going. Three doors of liberation remind us that we are no different than the wave, empty, signless, and able to touch the inherent in us in any moment. So before I go on, let me just pause and uh, take your thoughts, your questions, your comments. And I'm going to tie it, when we continue, I want to tie it back into some points that are very familiar from our practice. But first, let's see if you, if you have anything. Uh, Barbara, you're muted. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to share a real life story with um, you of myself. Many years ago, at the beginning of my practice, I was uh, volunteered, maybe foolishly, to help with my teacher's uh, retreat in Brooksville, uh, Florida, which is horse country, very different from the rest. And it was someplace I'd gone to a Vipassana retreat before. And, I wanted to make it perfect. I was the retreat leader, scheduler, and there it's a gorgeous place. It's all rolling hills and giant, unbelievable uh, trees with moss hanging from them that look like people. They were so impressive, just amazing. That must be uh, North Florida, right? Live Oaks in Central Florida, actually. And uh, we were very unused to this because the rest of Florida is kind of like a frying pan. Um, but um, I was running from the manor house where we held our discussions to the cabins to try and keep the uh, deep south caterers from giving us meat. It was a really difficult thing. They, they were not accustomed to anybody who didn't want ribs and so on and so forth. So, and then the cabins had other accommodations. Anyway, I was very worried about all these things being perfect for the retreatants. <clears throat> and the uh, two co-leaders of the retreat were Anhung and her husband Tu, who are uh, Anhung is Thich Nhat Hanh's niece. And I was constantly running in my mind and physically across this beautiful landscape with the live oaks. And suddenly both of them grabbed me and held me in their embrace, two grown adults. I'd never been in this situation before. And they said, dear sister Barbara, just breathe, just breathe, we see you are so concerned about everything and you need to let that go. So by accosting me, by capturing me, they set me free. Fast forward 10 years, I'm in at Tassahara and I go into the garden shed and there's the little gata under the Buddha there. It may not be there anymore, but it said, remember the one who is not busy. And it just, pierced me, you know, just an amazing thing. So here is this person, these people who are very close to Thich Nhat Hanh, who are encircling me and capturing me and keeping me from being chained to my busyness. 
So we just wanted to share that. Thank you. I mean, it's, that's very, that's really on the mark of what we were talking about. And uh, yes, it's a famous koan. Uh, there's one who is not busy. And that one is, we have to, we, we have to make that one ourself. We have that potentiality, but we have to stop. Sometimes it's great. Somebody has to tell us to stop. Uh, somebody may actually have to physically restrain us right, as they did. Wonderful. Really great. Thank you. Other thoughts, comments, stories? Well, I want to tell you, I want to connect this with our schools of practice. So in Fukan Zazengi, Dogen Zenji is very clear that when we have this line, the Zazen I'm speaking of is not learning meditation. Uh, so Zazen, and, and he says over and over again in different contexts, Zazen is not desiring or figuring out how to become a Buddha. It is not, that means it's not a technique uh, or an instrumentality by which we attain a special state of mind, not even the state of mind of enlightenment said, do not intend to make a Buddha. Um, the thing is, we don't have to intend to make a Buddha because the whole thrust of his, of Dogen's teaching is uh, that our practice is the expression of the fact that we already are Buddha. And we hear this over and over again and I think often, well, I can say for myself, sometimes I believe it and sometimes I uh, at best half believe it. Uh, but that is the consistent message. It's a consistent message of Suzuki Roshi, consistent message of Sojin. And we hear again and again uh, in Another fascicle that we study of Dogen's uh, Gakudo Yojinshu, Guidelines for Studying the Way, he reminds his students to be like the ancient sages, having no distorted thought of fame or profit, not even attached to the Dharma, meaning not even attached to enlightenment, uh, practicing neither for one's own sake nor for name and gain nor to attain blissful reward. Uh, practice Buddha Dharma for the sake of Buddha Dharma. So that's another way of talking about aimlessness or wishlessness. And there's a word for it. I, I, I only realized this recently. Um, 
you know, Suzuki Roshi and Sojin are always talking about no gaining idea. This is very familiar to us, right? Uh, but this is this is a core principle of of Soto Zen, uh, and it's actually a word for it. The word in Japanese is uh, musho toku, uh, which which translates as um, uh, mu is negation, mu is in no, uh, and sho means place, and toku means uh, an advance or gain or a profit. So there's no place of profit, no gaining idea. And we hear this again and again. And once you look back, you see in uh, you see in Sawaki Kodo, the, the great earlier 20th century Zen master, and uh, in other in Suzuki Roshi, all of them were putting forward this idea of practice to us. Practice with no gaining idea. That's the practice of aimlessness or wishlessness. Uh, yeah, Hiko. Uh, thank you, Hosan. And uh, I completely embrace uh, the destination of wishlessness. But I'm reading right now the Avatamsaka Sutra, which goes on pages and pages about the value of the will toward enlightenment. And as you were talking, I thought, okay, well, so we, the value of the will toward enlightenment uh, from, I'm a New Yorker in many years past, and is like getting a subway ticket and getting on the train. But if you're a New Yorker, you know, the train goes everywhere, so to speak. And so we have to have that will toward enlightenment, that sort of nudge of our own. How would you describe the nudge that we have to generate uh, with in such a way that we can understand and not become attached? I, I think that what we are being told is not so much that we have to generate it, but that we have to recognize it as already existent within us. The will to enlightenment. The, that's way, that's way-seeking mind. The reason that you're here, whatever it was, however you walk in the gate here, uh, there's something beyond your understanding that led you here. And you may think that you did it yourself and you participated in it for sure, mm. but there's something there's something in the causes and conditions of your life going back to the beginning uh, that are difficult to see, but they lead us here. Mm -hmm. I and mean, if I think of myself, you know, I agree how, did, with that. <laughs> how did a privileged, uh, educated kid of Jewish, of Jewish ethnic background from the suburbs of New York end up living in a zen temple for 40 years you know that was that was not in the cards <laughs> apparently <laughs> but it was yeah because it's beyond our understanding so some other point what i want to put i'd love to study and talk about with you because i've been reading um 
I've been reading Shinran. I've been reading a lot of Shin Buddhism and they are really, I mean, no gaining idea is, is also at the heart of that practice, but it's like not just no gaining idea, but no working, no doing that, that everything that is given to us is a gift of the Buddhas. And mm-hmm. it's very, you know, uh, it would be interesting for us to study it because it's turning things, it turns things on their head. And yet we work as gifts from Buddha in the world. We have, yes. I mean, that's, that's what we're taught is, I, I feel that what, I'm, what I've been given, I'm responsible. When we look at a gift, uh, the nature of gift giving, the nature of giving is to keep the gift in circulation. So if, if we have been given something, we have to pass it on. And that's all that we're doing. We're just okay. passing on. We're passing on what the ancestors gave to us. And that's not a, that's not a goal. It's more of a responsibility. <laughs> a job. Yeah. Sue? Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I was, I wanted to put my struggles with um, learning how to back up my computer uh, in a new way with what you're talking about. It's just the separation and also some other household maintenance things that are just like pecking at my liver or something. And um, that's another myth. <laughs> Go ahead. Help. Um, I, I am not it does not help me to be caught up in gaining mind about these things. I'm not sure, you know, there's a goal that I, I hope to reach, which is someday nothing will ever need maintenance or go wrong, but that's not a likely goal. And, um, that happens when we die. (laughs) You hope that's, I trust. I have some faith in, in, at least in that. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to put this out because, you know, hearing your words and saying, yes, yes, gaining mind and then starting to look at my calendar and some of the things I need to do. And it's like, well, okay, I'm clinging to an idea of accomplishing something, but what you're opening up is the idea of trust that this is how life is it's what's presenting itself and it is a gift the way it is and i get to meet a new computer tech guy that i like very much you know so i don't know that we'll accomplish anything because i'm the kind of person that walks into a copy store and every machine breaks instantly so we'll see what happens right um that's exactly the attitude is let's see what happens let's open a door it's it's not to be a, you know some spineless willless blob it's you know we do things we move forward in the world 
and we see what happens. Um, but Dogen says, he says, simply do good without expectation of reward or recognition. Be truly gainless for the sake of benefiting others. The primary point to hear in mind is to drop your ego. To keep this in mind, you have to awaken to imper impermanence. And to awaken, to awaken to impermanence means not attached to the signs. And it also means uh, to be open to what is given to us from moment to moment. And to, you know, this is what, what, uh, what Bernie Glassman talked about, which is, which I love this metaphor. It's like, he was always talking about cooking the supreme meal. But cooking the supreme meal out of whatever ingredients you have at that moment. So you open the refrigerator of your, of your life and you see what, what's in there and you cook something out of it. Whatever it is, you do your best to make it tasty. That's also more fun. It's fun, yeah. Depends on what you got in a refrigerator, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kabir. Thank you for this great talk. Um, is it safe to say then, trust the process? Because I'm throwing the word trust and that can, that, that has a gaining weight to it, doesn't it? No, I don't think so. That, that's, no, trust is, I, I, I'm not stuck on the word trust. I'm sort of trust on, stuck on the word process. Okay. Uh, you know, um, because it, as soon as you name a process, as soon as you call something a process, you're, you're kind of attaching a sign to it. You're trying, you're trying to, you're, when you call something a process, that means you're seeing an order and a sequence to it. Uh, and it's a kind of objectification. Uh, just trust what's happening and see how you can cook your, cook the, the, the best meal you can from the ingredients that are being given. And sometimes they're pretty, sometimes they're not such tasty ingredients, perhaps, you know, it's hard. Yeah, that. Thank you. That creativity. Usually, I need to uh, use that at eleven o'clock at night when our thirteen-year-old son gets hungry and he's a super picky eater. So, yeah, when I open that refrigerator, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I, my advice to you is teach him to cook. Teach <laughs> him to cook. Teach him to cook now. It's really yes. great. It's a great thing to be able to cook for yourself. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, thank you. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll definitely use that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, uh, Gary. Yeah, I just wanted to say that Dogen's um, referring to um, impermanence is such a great teaching because, you know, really what I notice when I gain something, it's a, the the joy of gaining it is so impermanent like sometimes i'll get something and it and about two hours later all the joy is gone 
and I'll and I'll say like, what happened? And, and really, it, it it it's true that it, and that it's kind of circular, aimless uh, aimlessness and impermanence kind of rotate because you 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 attain a goal and it loses its power and you attain a goal and it loses its power that, that's that's my feeling anyway or my thought i think you know so in those verses that i read um you know let me just find this this stack of papers here that i've been discarding um Here it is. So trusting to get back to Kabir's word, impermanence. This is this is what I like in uh, uh, those for opening lines from the Shodoka. Uh, there is the leisurely one walking the way beyond philosophy, not avoiding fantasy, not seeking truth. So just open. And you know, there's a there's a word for this in French literature, uh, which the idea has always appealed to me. It comes it it appears in the in 19th century uh, literature. The word is flaneur, F-L-A-N-E-U-R. And uh, it derives from an old Norse word, which means to wander with no purpose. And uh, that's exactly, there's a leisurely one walking the way beyond philosophy. So Baudelaire talks about this and Poe talks about this. And it was actually a, a very common uh, trope in uh, late 19th century, literature of just someone who walks through the city and just takes it in just you know and it's there's there's some ambiguity uh because it's uh, it's equal part it's it's kind of part curiosity and part laziness you know but uh i think it's it's sort of a the western a western literary articulation of what's going on in what's being described in the Shodoka. And uh, this is something, it's something that I shared with Sojin, you know, one of the greatest pleasures, the two places that I've always loved to walk and I walked aimlessly uh, along beaches, just walking for, you know, I could walk for miles along beaches and to walk in cities. And I know that uh, Sojin loved walking. You know, when you would go with him with the city, he would just walk around the city and just just take it in. So this is you could be you could be this leisurely one uh, walking the way beyond philosophy, which is also kind of like being a flaneur. So uh, I just plant that for you.
that's embracing impermanence. Anne? Hi. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't going to bring this up, but you brought up French literature. So it's been on my mind, <laughs> which was I just recently reread re Nausea, you know, by, by Sartre. And we, because I thought there was something in there that was Zen like, but I hadn't looked at it since the 1970s, probably. So yeah, I don't, I, don't read, I haven't either. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, you know, I got going on it and it was like totally like, you know, people, no, I'm not going to go on a tangent, but uh, anyhow, it, it totally had all these uh, Buddhist uh, awakening aspects to it. And it was, and the thing that really caught me was because we've been talking about signlessness so much. It was like, you know, it was all about getting rid of the signs because that was what was in his way you know, of of existence, but existence was so hideous to him. It was like globs of jelly, you know. And uh, but um, anyhow, so I was going, well, I better look this up, you know, and it turned out that Sartre, I think it was Heidegger, that he'd read Heidegger. I think it was a phenomenologist, but uh, these uh, phenomenologists had, um, had studied, uh, a, a number of them had studied Buddhism. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think even Zen Buddhism, but uh, so anyhow, I I think that Sartre, you know, got this, and and then you're talking about the walk, the French walk. He was going on different walks, alleyways, you know, around trees and parks and stuff like that, uh, and and uh, you know, the walk was really a big thing where just all these names started falling away and he started hating people and their attachment to forms and everything. So I just, but the, his end, the ending of the book, he decided the only, he was really enjoying jazz music because that was the only escape from the world of form, you know, was listening to this thing that just was in the air. So he decided he wasn't a musician, but he was going to write something that was creative. And that was his answer to it, but it's just, uh, I don't know, it's just incredible because I think the Buddhism, and then also I've, I, I've seen it, it interested postmodern thought to, you know, like Derrida, another French person, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Let, yeah. Me read, let, me, let me read you something from Baudelaire, okay? Um, the lover of life makes the whole world his family, just like the lover of the fair sex who builds up his family uh, from all the beautiful women that he has ever found or, or that are or are not to be found. Uh, thus the lover of universal life enters into the crowd as though it were an immense reservoir of electrical energy. Or we might liken him to a mirror as vast as the crowd itself, or to a kaleidoscope gifted with consciousness, responding to each one of its movements and reproducing the multiplicity of life and the flickering grace of all the elements of life. Uh, I think this is kind of what we're talking about here, but seen through the surprising lens of, uh, uh, you know, the, this French poet, Baudelaire. Anyway, to go back, I just want to go back to one thing in the, in the moments that we have 
left, which is to say that, just to remind us that aimlessness is not posited as in opposition to waking up. Aimlessness is, again, it's, re, it's a way of dwelling in emptiness, of deconstructing all of the signs that we consciously and unconsciously create and in allowing ourselves to be completely permeable and porous to the nature of reality. Uh, and so it is in fact waking up, but we have to be, we're constant, there's this dynamic tension, you know, where, uh, From Buddhism in the very beginning, from the, from the very beginning, you know, there's a drive towards enlightenment, there's a drive towards nirvana. And at the same time, it's already there. It's not something that you can, you create or that you achieve. It's the process of actually peeling back the layers, stripping back the, uh, all the, all of those layers of self-creation so that one can uh, be really open. And being really open means feeling everything, including pain, grief, sorrow, but also joy and celebration and gratitude. Uh, it just means being, means being fully receptive instead of uh, directive. So that's, that's kind of the point that I want to leave you with. Uh, and I don't know if, if there are any last thoughts or questions from anybody, but uh, I think I'm I'm kind of at the end of what I wanted to say for tonight. Is there anyone who, who anyone who hasn't spoken yet that would like to speak? Nathan. Thank you, Hosan. Um, this is a question about our practice. Okay. There was uh, an email on the listserv that went around this week, um, an article from the tricycle. Um, and- That was Dosho's article? Is he the, um, the Dharma heir of um, Katagiri? He studied with Katagiri, yeah. Yeah, I didn't read it, but I, I, I actually had a conversation with Lori about it. Yes, go ahead. Um, I, I, it made me really mad. Um, there was, you know, it struck me as like a unnecessarily sectarian um, 
Dharma smack talking, um, sort of condescending towards uh, Soto practitioners and um, you know, the, the lack of focus on awakening in our practice was troubling or inauthentic or, you know, um, and, you know, I recognize part of the reason it made me mad was that I came to BZC having read the three pillars of Zen determined that I wanted to have Kensho like, you know, as soon as possible. And, um, you know, I had doubts as I came to understand what our practice is, um, you know, uh, I remember reading the introduction, rereading the introduction to um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, where Suzuki Roshi's wife jokes that um, he doesn't talk about enlightenment because he hadn't had an enlightenment experience. And um, taking that very seriously, you know, it, it, that it made me have doubts about the form of practice that um, that we practice. But talking to teachers, um, I, I've come to understand that the focus on no gaining idea is part of what differentiates us from, or you know, our practice from one that's more focused on achieving Kensho, that, that, that there's a, the idea that that it is an opening that needs to happen for one to progress in one's practice. So I guess I, I would, what's the question? The question <laughs> has to do with, with um, is that a gateway? Is that a, um, the, um, it, it feels to me like, like the no gaining idea as part of my sitting is is an essential part of what it is that defines our our practice yeah what i would well i think it's really important don't be attached to no gaining idea that's that's no gaining idea in a sense and this is what Thich Nhat Hanh says over and over again, he says, don't be attached. And uh, Sojin said, don't be attached to a point of view. If you're, you know, you should always be looking to the other side of that point of view. And uh, Dosho, Dosho is a bit of a provocateur and he was bringing up from what I understand from, uh, you know, from reading other things of his and uh, from talking to Lori who read it, uh, you know, he was bringing up the other side. That's good because it makes us think, you know, and I'll just say autobiographically, I came, when I first came to Berkeley Zen Center, which was in the summer of 1968, my comprehension of Zen was, mostly based on uh, reading and being excited by Three Pillars of Zen, which had just been published. Uh, and when I came here, I didn't talk to anybody and nobody talked to me. It wasn't as friendly as it was. It wasn't unfriendly. It's just like kind of you're left to come and go. 
So I didn't realize that there was something different going on here than what was being talked about in Three Pillars of Zen. But the problem that I had with Three Pillars of Zen as a 19-year-old, or let's see, 68, 20-year-old, um, was I had spent all the previous years uh, through high school and college striving. And it's like I wasn't comfortable striving for something else, so-called enlightenment. So it was a real problem for me. And it wasn't until later when I returned uh, after reading uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, that I saw there was another approach to practice. But that didn't mean that what was being presented in Three Pillars of Zen, what was represented in other schools of Buddhism was, was bogus or false. Whatever it is, there's the, you know, look to the other side. That's also the practice of uh, aimlessness or wishlessness, is, is understanding that there is another side and we are left, each of us as individuals is left with the conundrum of trying to figure out how to integrate that. You know, um, a large awakening experience can be, you know, it can be really valuable. Uh, it also can be a hindrance. It's completely dependent upon what you make it. So that's where I say. Um, I see, Lynn, why don't you ask the last question? It's not really a question, but okay. in the um, a lecture, the topic Sojin gave the dokusan that he had given, and before he spoke about enjoy your form, even if it's, you can enjoy your form, even if it's not well, that part preceding what I thought so profound, I wanted to bring to offer it up in our closing where he talked about, this is plain Jane Buddhism. And he talked about offering ourselves to emptiness, to signlessness and to wishlessness. Yeah. You know, a, a giving to, and um, is it, yeah, and a giving to reality. Then he went into the empty form and enjoyed the form. And I just felt it was so, Great and simple and classic. <laughs> yeah. Well, plain Jane Buddhism, give yourself to the three. Walk through those doors. Just walk through them aimlessly, <laughs> receptively, giving yourself and receiving what's given to you. That's, that's, that's where we go. That's walking. That's using those three doors. So thank you. Thank you for, uh, for uh, coming to this class for these four weeks. And uh, uh, I hope you'll use this material and uh, we will continue our studies. Let's close with the Bodhisattva Faust. Beings are numberless, I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. 
Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.